0: Hello, and welcome to an Ultimaker Turns 10 bonus episode. A miniature portrait of one of our year one staff members who, along with our co-founders and some of their early collaborators, helped paint a portrait of Ultimaker in its earliest years. This is Ultimaker Turns 10 bonus episode five, Bart Konings.
1: I am Bart Konings. My role at Ultimaker right now is I'm a product quality engineer which uh, pretty much entails I work at the Zappelmo where the factory is, where we make the actual printers and my role is there to uh, assure the quality of all the products. So the products coming in, the small little parts, the nozzles, the uh, little screws and the products going out. So the material station, all the hard wrap, everything you can touch within Ultimac.
0: So you joined when you were around 21 years old?
1: Yeah. Right. So I was studying business mathematics is the translation and I was studying that the second year of my study and I just needed a new side job. I I did a side job as a waiter and I was a bit sick of it. So I went looking on different websites for new side jobs and one of those contractor websites contacted me and they said, we have some job for you maybe. And they gave me a job description. It was a very uh, vague job description. New starting company needs uh, some extra hands. Could be everything, something like that was the job description, Very vague, but it it sounded (laughs) better than working somewhere in a a shipyard uh, from six in the morning. So I went to uh, a job interview at that building. So not at Ultimaker yet. And we had some uh, questions back and forward and they were uh, pretty happy with me. And uh, at the end of the interview, they said, so you should uh, look up Ultimaking because it was called Ultimaking back in the days. And have a look for yourself and I will uh, get your, your uh, credentials uh, to Ultimaking and we will see if they invite you or not. And I was like, okay, thanks. And I'll go home. And I was like, okay, I had a job interview, but I don't know anything yet. I went home and as soon as I, I got home, I looked up Ultimaking, of course. And I saw uh, a clip of Erik de Bruyne where he was talking about uh, 3D printing. And I was immediately, I, I, I loved it because it was technology and it was new and it was weird and. You could imagine a thousand things you could do with a 3d printer. So that was all cool. A few days go by and I got a call from the contractor firm and they said, uh, they want you up for an interview. Well, I had an interview and it was at Eric de Brown's home address. So I knew the address. It was in Tilburg, the city I live. So I thought, has a home address. Sure. Fine. A new company it should be fine. So I went there a bit early. So I was at 15 minutes early, I think. And then, so I knocked on the door. And Eric Ryan opens and he said, oh, oh, I'm sorry, you're Bart, right? I'm sorry. I'm still busy with my previous interview, but do you mind waiting in the uh, living room? So I went in the living room and it was like the same room as the kitchen. And he was doing the interview in the kitchen with the previous one. So I could hear ev- everything. It was a bit, it was a bit weird, but there was, uh, this guy from the university in his full suit where, where I was wearing just a t-shirt like this today. And he was there in full suit uh, talking about what he could add to the company and stuff like that. And here, Eric, Eric uh, had that conversation for five more minutes or so. And then he said goodbye to that guy. And then he came in the room and we started talking. And one of the first questions I asked was, do you have a 3D printer here? Because I'm so curious how that it looks. And, and the rest of the interview was talking about the 3D printer. <laughs> and then at a, a certain moment, he looked at his watch and says, uh, I really need to go now. And he asked one or two more questions and then he showed me the door. I was like, did I make a good impression? We didn't really talk about me, so I have no clue. And the same day I got called by the contractor firm that I was the candidate that got the job just because of my enthusiasm.
0: So you were able to get this side gig and start to, to help with a 3D printer company while you were in school. What were
1: those early days like? I think the first few months was one day and Eric asked if it's, it was okay if it was just at his house together with him at his uh, kitchen table. We were just putting screws in the back of certain amounts yep. and stuff like that. So already the, the work was very boring, but the ideas around it and the talks during the day were very cool. So I, I loved it right away. And I worked there two or three times at Eric's home. And then he said, next time we drive to uh, Martijn's home, one of the other founders. And we work from there because there the most of the parts are. And yet they his own a laser cutter, a machine. I drove together with Eric to uh, Martijn and Elsemann. Uh, In Zalpommel and there in the garage, I think it was like two desks opposite of each other and the four of us around those two desks and the laser cutter. And that that was it basically in the beginning.
0: For the first couple of months, it was mostly out of kitchens and and that back room at Martijn's place. When did things move over to the first external site?
1: I think it's around a half a year later or something. Arma was already there at that point, sometimes from home and sometimes from the office as well, and Marit already worked, but she worked from home and did something on the electronics. And at that point, as soon as we made some orders, it was like, I think 10 or 20 uh, machines, then the whole hallway would be full with boxes waiting for DHL to pick them up. So, we needed something bigger. And then we got that little school building. And the first time I went there, uh, we went into the, the front room and it was really cold because the boiler wasn't working. And then he said, Yeah, it th- doesn't really matter because we're not going to use this yet. And it was the front room. And then we went into a little side room and I said, this is our office. It was like twice the size of Martijn's. And I said, here it's going to happen. And then we did a little roundabout in the rest of the building. And there was even a little swimming pool somewhere upstairs because there was a leakage and there was some rain falling down and he was just, yeah, we just don't come here. And then it's fine. I don't know who said it, but I vividly remember that was the case. And and it was like two or three months later that there were like 10 desks in the same place with our new R&D department. At a certain point, we used all the parts of the buildings and even in the smallest little rooms, there was an office with as much desk as you could put in a room and there was a small building in between and that part was not heated and there was a door there, but it was locked or it was barricaded at some point, I don't know. But we got loads of uh, packaging material in and we couldn't put it anywhere anymore because the only place we had. At that point was desks and uh, boxes with goods that we already made. So we put it there, but it was freezing cold and it was in the winter and in the building it was freezing cold and we called it Siberia. So every time someone needed to get something uh, from there, it's like, you need to go to Siberia, maybe wear a jacket or something. Half a year or two years later, we did that same Siberia that we uh, deemed like a rotten part of the building that nobody uses. There were like two full production lines with 18 uh, people building like 50 printers a day or something.
0: Looking at your roles and as they changed over the years, you came in to basically just help the assembling kits and getting things out the door. And over time, you ended up helping to formalize the process of producing those and managing production on on those elements. Do you want to tell that story of how that happened and how you were able to expand your role?
1: As we grew and grew, in the first couple of years, it was like a few people, I think, that were helping out, even uh, friends of mine, uh, I asked to come and help for a few days. And some of them were really eager and even poking me like, is there another job free? Because I I really want to come and help because, whoa, 3D printers. (laughs) For example, Martijn Vergils, who everybody knows now is someone that worked here forever. uh, At that point was poking me and a colleague back then called Tamar. We had some experience ordering stuff and uh, production started taking over the ordering parts from C. Derek Martijn. Next to him was me, the one that had some more technical knowledge on the product because I was there from the beginning. So I was organically growing into that, that role of seeing how the processes flowed and how we could already start looking at quality and it grew and grew. And that's how I grew with the company basically. At a certain point, I was more looking into the technical part of the things. And I was uh, looking up to the people at R&D and thinking, whoa, what if I could be like that uh, someday? And then I saw myself doing more and more uh, quality-based things and and prove myself basically to that side of the company.
0: In the early days of desktop 3D printing, what you could get were these kits. And uh, the kits had, in some cases, more parts than a small car. What was it like looking at that process and trying to improve it to make sure that all the bundle of parts that went out for an Ultimaker arrive in a country across the, the planet and uh, people will be able to assemble it and have a good experience?
1: I think we just used the most basic knowledge that you could have. And the most basic understanding of if we have a piece of plywood and we cut it into really small pieces and we put some screws in the same bag and a motor or two, but someone is going to buy it for a thousand euros. You expect something. For me at that point, it was a lot of money. And for someone uh, wanting to 3D print, because at that point it was just imagining the 40 year old guy in the attic at his uh, mom's house wanting to play with Warhammer figures or something like that. It was a lot of money and you could also buy those for 150 or 300 euros or whatever. So of course you wanted to be uh, a little bit better, so a little bit better in quality as well. It was really organic how we forced ourselves to be really good in the quality. Because we wanted that for the people and we almost were that people ourselves, right? You were all the people that really liked the idea of 3D printing and you were so invested in the idea that you just wanted it to be of great quality. So it was no question if we needed a good quality product.
0: Skipping forward to today, there are a lot of processes in place, including solutions that are 3D printed to help improve inspection and quality testing coming in and going out. Are you involved in that process?
1: On some parts, when you stumbled upon an issue, 3D printing was not always the first thing that's in mind, because the first thing I I always think is we're not the only company that encounters this issue. So you go looking for the solution and sometimes it's a bit harder to look for it. And then you start tinkering yourself. And when I have a problem, for instance, that I don't solve within a few minutes or hours or whatever, we just bounce off each other and, and see what's going on and then very quickly, you go to D printing because that's just in your head as, as one of the solutions, when you think of your washing machine, for example, that breaks down, most people would say, I need to buy a new uh, part or I need to call the washing machine manufacturer. The first thing I think is, "Ah, it's broken. Now I have to draw it so I can print it. It's a mindset I think that you develop (laughs) out of just working here.
0: Uh, What are some, mile markers, if you will, of how things changed? For production uh, think the biggest milestones are,
1: are for example, of course, going from a kit to assembly, very easy because having to to assemble the whole thing is, is a whole uh, lot of bigger process. So that's one of the milestones going uh, from the original to the first UM2, which was uh, really interesting and really stressful at that point as well. It was a whole new product for us, although it was just another 3D printer that just printed a little better and most of all looked a lot nicer.
0: But probably the quantity of components was suddenly a lot bigger.
1: From the original to the Ultimaker 2, there were some, uh, definitely some changes in, in, in inspecting. So we got products in that actually needed to confirm to a certain spec. Whereas in the original, of course, we needed to confirm to a certain spec as well, but it was all a bit loose and wide because, because it was a motor that was just picked somewhere in Martijn's workshop and it's like, this is good enough. And then everyone said, yeah, probably. And then we used that motor from that manufacturer for a few years and it worked for, for all those types. At the uh, Ultimaker 2 Plus, we started thinking more and more about uh, what would we get out of those single parts. And that made a big change in incoming control, f- for example, where we would, when a batch came in, take a few out of the batch and start checking if they were actually uh, what we expected them to be, where we, in the original did not really do that that much. So that was a big change in process. And and those changes came of course, with a lot of extra workload. That's not always accounted for in the beginning. So you think you go from an original to a UM2, when you looked at the thing, the building time was almost the same. You could even maybe get it a little down if you would build a lot at the same time. So the initial idea was we can do it with the same or less people. But once you start and you see all these extra things coming in that we needed to check and stuff like that. You saw that we needed more and more people, although we were building the same amount of machines. So those were big changes with the UM2 plus you saw that as well, but a little uh, less. But as soon as we, we went into the S line, that was, I think the biggest change because there the tolerances of all the things became smaller and became more important and more important. And also the issues there became uh, bigger (laughs) and bigger. Because a really small change in a part could lead to a really big issue in in the end.
0: So then what about some of the pre-assemblies when the Memphis factory started manufacturing in the United States?
1: That was a scary time for us as well, because now all the things we did, all of a sudden we had to do the same thing somewhere overseas without really having control over it. But we were very lucky at having Simon there, who was already very familiar with Ultimaker, of course. I think it went pretty smoothly from the beginning. Which I didn't think so in the beginning, I was very skeptic <laughs> about it because I always saw the app product and always knew what was going on. And I, I don't say I, I, I always did it perfect and everything went perfect, but at least I knew what was going on. And from that point on 30 to 50% of our product was just blind for me, which was scary in the beginning. In the end, of course it was working and, and it, it was the right decision, but that was scary beginning. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I would love to see a floor plan of that farmhouse. Uh, yeah, yeah, there are pictures, <laughs> you know, everything got used. Yeah. It was so, it
1: was so, it so far that, that the, the, I don't know how to call it the way of easiness and I, I want to say nerdiness of the, the way of working at that point was that now you have processor for everything and things in place and you have to apply to some rules and there are some even unwritten rules. And at that point. For example, at a certain point, it was like 30 degrees out, so very hot, middle of summer, and there was no air conditioning in that, that room. So it went very hot uh, inside, so almost unbearable. So what we did is we just carried some of the desks outside, sat outside in our shorts and our slippers, and we sat on our laptops uh, working. We were just a, a few guys and girls that, that love to work there and do our best. And we'll see how we do it. And of course we, we get more professional and everything is uh, is more set in processes. And, and that's also where yeah. when you start seeing people leave because they don't feel connected to the company anymore that yeah. much. And I always thought I would lose that connection at some point as well, because I like the informality of, of a certain job. And I think I also fit way better in an informal workplace than a very formal workplace. But I'm still here and I still love it. I'm a product quality engineer in our factory, so in Zubelman.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you again to this week's guest. And in two weeks' time, join us right here for our next bonus episode. Don't want to miss any of this great content? If you haven't already, you should subscribe to Talking Additive wherever you listen to podcasts. And join the conversation by signing up for news and announcements at TalkingAdditive.com. Editing for this episode by Alexander Seuss, our series producer is Hannah Gabrielle Tahini, studio manager David Roberson, music by Brian Scarry and Giulio Carmasi of Hummingbirds Custom Music and Sound. I am host and producer Matt Griffin, and thank you for listening.